Okay. Uh, Seven Mile Road, I, I want to say that I'm grateful to God for this time to preach and very excited for what we're going to preach through in this month. Uh, for this month, in our preaching, we're going to be talking about marriage. Marriage is what we'll consider for this month of July. Now, as I say that, let me say a few words by way of introduction to orient us all to this series. Um, first of all, this is not going to be an extensive, exhaustive um, sort of comprehensive series. So this is not going to be like the year-long series that we did in the book of Exodus or even the 15 weeks that we just spent on preaching through and talking about prayer. Uh, instead, what we're hoping for in this month is just to be as helpful and practical as we possibly can and say something so that we can shape our understanding of marriage from the scriptures and be helpful in such a way so that we might have both current and future marriages at Seven Mile Road that are good and joyful and glorifying to God and satisfying to your soul. Uh, let me tell you why I, I think we're doing this right now is that on the one hand, I have felt like marriage is such an immense and enormous and important topic that I have really felt like I've wanted to push it off as long as possible. Uh, on the one hand, I'm young. I have a young marriage. And so I've often felt like, what would I possibly have to say about marriage that might be helpful to you or practical for you? Um, and so I, I felt like, maybe when I'm 50, then we'll finally you know, address marriage. And so I've sort of wanted to be putting it away and, and refer you to other books that you can read by smarter, better men. On the other hand, I've also felt like we're now about to approach three years in the life of our church. And so as a three-year-old church, we've never really said anything about marriage. And the reality is, even if I wait till I'm 50, you're all still married and getting married, and marriages will be the norm at Seven Mile Road. And so to never have said anything uh, would be a disservice as well. And so we want to trust that what we have to say comes from God's Word and the authority of God's Word and not human opinion or human advice anyway. And so we want to consider it. And so this month what we want to do is just talk about an overview of marriage, talk about men and marriage and women in marriage and marriage and sex, and that's sort of where we want to go uh, this month. Let me say also this by way of introduction as well. I know when we come to anything in the life of the church, and especially a topic like marriage, I know that we come from very different places, very different backgrounds, carrying with us different baggage, very different stages of life. And so we, when we come to anything, we come that way, but particularly when we come to something like marriage, I know that even in a room as small as ours, we've all got different things that we bring into the conversation. Some of you are married, but even within your marriages, we're in different places. Some of you, if you're honest, you're sitting next to your spouse and you could honestly look each other in the eye and say, we're in a really good season. Marriage is going great. And you could honestly, with great integrity, look at one another, smile at one another and know this has been a really gracious, good season of marriage. And maybe you're excited at even the thought of us talking through marriage because you're always looking to even get better. And so this might be a great joy for you. Others of you, if you're honest, would perhaps say that you're okay. You could be better. You could certainly be worse. It sort of is what it is, right? And so maybe you're here and, and part of you might be nervous at what might be said that might show some things are not well or might be excited about, hey, we could always have room for growth and maybe we'll pick up some pointers along these weeks that might help us to go from an okay marriage to a great season of marriage. The other reality is that some of us are here and if we would be honest, our marriages are in desperate and dire straits. Some of you know that you've played the game so long, and especially people who come to church are very good at games. And so you know what it's like to try and put on a front week in and week out and try to hide as best as you can what's going on at home. And so you put your best foot forward and you put your best face forward, but deep down you know, even as I mention this, you know that your marriage is in a place that is difficult. Perhaps you've seen yourself going past boundaries and crossing boundaries and saying things and doing things that you never thought possible, and you're there now. Maybe you've grown to a place where you're so bitter that marriage is the last thing you want to hear about. Or maybe even you've grown to a place that's so desperate that maybe this is the mercy of God to you, and you feel like any lifeline thrown your direction would be a help because you're sinking and you're drowning and you'll hold on to anything if it could just 
pull you up out of where you are. Others of us come into the room and we come from divorce. Some of us have background of divorce in our parents' lives. Some of us come from broken homes. Some of us have experienced divorce ourselves. Divorce is commonly known to be even more painful than the death of a spouse. Right? There's emotional pain that you bring into the room that it would be easier to bury your spouse than to be separated from them. And so you have broken dreams of your own and you know of the pain of going through that. My prayer for you and continues to be is that Seven Mile Road would be a community that is full of grace and truth for you. That's who Jesus was. In John 1, when the Apostle John is describing Jesus, he says he was a man full of grace and full of truth. There was this sense about Jesus that no matter how messed up you were, no matter what your past was, no matter where you are in life, what your stage was, everybody could go to Jesus and just sense that they were accepted and welcomed, that pardon was free and forgiveness was everywhere, and you could come to Jesus. At the same time, Jesus was full of truth. So he wasn't compromising things. He wasn't watering them down. He wasn't saying what people wanted them to, him to say. He was somehow this wonderful blend of grace and truth. And my prayer is that Seven Mile Road would be that same kind of community for you. It would be a community that is full of grace and full of truth. That when you belong here, that this would be a place where you know you are welcome. There's no scarlet letter on your chest. But that you're sitting around sinners, every one of you, whether they know it or not. And there's no one here boasting of anything but the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and all of us being sinners saved by grace. That this would be a community where you're accepted and welcomed and loved, where you might even have an opportunity to heal. And that this would be a community that still speaks truth. Right? A, a pastor used to say, we can speak soft words and produce hard hearts or, or speak hard words that produces soft hearts. And that's what we want Seven Mile Road to be. A place that blends both God's truth and God's grace in a way that you might come alive. That would serve you not just in making you feel well for the short run, but give you blessing and fulfillment in the long run. And others of you are in a different season. You're single, right? Maybe widowed or, or single. And you too come to Seven Mile Road and and this series can feel a certain way for you as well. Many of our singles, to their credit, have been so honest with me about just the difficulty of being single at church. Being single in Jesus' church, and even a particular, a church like Seven Mile Road, is often a very difficult experience. If you're married, you would even be oblivious to it. You wouldn't even know. But often church can feel like a place that is a club for married people and their children. And so it can be very difficult to be single. And I'm so grateful to God for the single folks in our community that have stuck through and been honest about these struggles. And I want you to know we have tried very hard to be intentional in loving people in whatever walk of life they come into our church, married or divorced or widowed or single. We've preached on singleness in a way that we still have not yet even preached about marriage. We've tried to be thoughtful about it. I've even heard great feedback that was so helpful to me that when I preach, I tend to lean towards illustrations about marriage and children because I speak from my experience. But that was good for me to hear, that that can be isolating and difficult. And so we want even our pulpit ministry to be able to connect with people no matter where they come from or what stage of life they're in. And so we want to, we, we want to make sure that if you're here and you're single, you don't feel left out. Don't check out and go, I'll see you in August when you guys are done with all this. Stay with us, right? And, and here's why. I, I would say a few things to you. One, no matter what we say in these next few weeks, much of these are truths about relationships in general. And, and all of us have relationships. And so some of these principles and truths are applicable to us even outside of relationships of marriage in whatever relationships we might have. Another reality is that the statistics themselves tell us that 9 out of 10 of those who are single will be married. And so some of what I want to share in these weeks are things that I wish I heard while I was still single. And it would have been so helpful to me and I hope is helpful to you, if not in this season, in another season that God might have you in. Another thing I would remind you is you live life in community. None of us are here for ourselves. And so 
for better or worse, you're in community, in soul care, doing life with married folk. And they will often come and dump their issues and their problems on you. And so you as singles, I hope, will be in a place that you can offer counsel, even if you're not particularly in that same life stage. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul, our Lord Jesus Christ, these were single men, and yet they taught on marriage and instructed about marriage and counseled on marriage. And we hope that you would be the same so that when you come across married people, you might allow the Bible to shape what you might speak into their lives as well because you have a huge role and responsibility to help brothers and sisters here. And above all, I would say this. Let us not forget that the most happy and full and complete and, and, and satisfied human being who has ever lived was never married, never had children, never had a family that he was the head of. The Lord Jesus was single. And he was, and I want you to hear this, fully man, and he was the most happy, full, complete, satisfied human being that there has ever been. And so no matter what stage of life you come into, married, divorced, widow, single, whatever that might be, all of us can rally around the reality that fulfillment in life comes from Jesus Christ. He's who we all gather around. We, we don't put even a good gift like marriage or children at center stage and rally around it. We put the person and work of Jesus at the center and all of us come streaming <clears throat> from whatever stage of life we're in and find fulfillment and meaning in life in him. So what I want to do as we begin these, these next few weeks is <clears throat> just sort of give you an overview of marriage as what we'll do today. I just want to tell you again the story of marriage. I want to tell you where it began. I want to just walk you through that story. You've heard it before, perhaps some of you. Perhaps that might be new to others of you. But I just want to tell you that story again and tell you about the invention of marriage, right? And walk you through that story. As we do that, I want to tell you some of my own story. And I do that in part so that you know that this is not some ancient book with theory that has no relevance to your life but that this is incredibly relevant. And I hope that you see flesh and blood as you read this. And so I hope that that would be an encouragement to you. Right? I want us to consider how this book begins. Right? Unless you've got your head in the sand, you know that in our culture and in our day, marriage is at center stage. Everyone's looking at it. Everyone's trying to understand it. Everyone's trying to define it or redefine it. And I think the scriptures would pull us all back and say this. Nobody gets to define marriage. God does, because God made it. If marriage was a 200-year-old thing, then we could all talk about what it is and what it means. But God made marriage, and so we get to hear from God what marriage is. When you open the Bible, the very first thing that you're going to see is a wedding. And immediately, you're going to see that that wedding turns into a war. And for many of us, that's been the narrative of our marriages, a wedding that has quickly turned into a war. And then when you get to the end of the Bible, you find that there's a war, but it leads to a wedding. That's the bookends of the Bible. And so that's where we want to start even this morning. All right? Let's pray for this morning. Let's pray for the weeks to come. And then we'll consider Genesis 2 and how it begins. Oh, Lord, we come together and come and ask now for your help, that you would be generous with the Holy Spirit, that he might come and touch the words of my mouth, that they would not be human thought or opinion, but divine truth, and that as we hear from my fallible voice, we might truly hear in our hearts and our souls the infallible voice of God. I pray that you would be with the men and women that are gathered here on this day and in the weeks to come, that you, because it's your nature to help and serve, would help and serve these brothers and sisters in the different stages of life that they're in, and that you might speak your truth to them in a way that brings their soul much joy. I pray that you would produce soft hearts at Seven Mile Road, and in this season and the years to come, that there might be good marriages that reflect the good Lord Jesus to our city and world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is how the story begins. If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Genesis 1 begins, In the beginning, God created, and you get the account of how God made all that has been made. 
In Genesis 2, we're sort of zoomed in and we get a look at how the first human being that was ever made was made. That's in verse 7. So look at it with me. It says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right? Verse 7 is the beginning of all things, and what God does is he forms some dust from the ground, he forms it, breathes into it, and suddenly Adam takes his first breath and becomes this living creature made in the image and likeness of God. Verse 15, this is what the Lord does to that man. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here's what I would have us just pay attention to. Before God gives this man a wife, he gives him a job, right? And so that might be an order that we would pay attention to as well. You want a wife? Get a job, right? That's how God has designed it from the beginning. And I want, I want to make note of this. This is not after the fall. Remember, this is not post-chapter 3. This is not broken world. This is not sin. Everything is still perfect. And yet, in this perfect world, I, I want you to imagine that. It's not that if there was no sin, we'd all be on hammocks sipping iced tea. That God wired the man and designed the man before sin to have a job. And, and here you hear what his job is. The last two phrases, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's his call. That's the mission every man has been entrusted with, is work and keep. In the original language, those two words could also be translated cultivate and guard. Hear that again. That what the man's supposed to do is he he's supposed to cultivate and build up and beautify and guard and defend and protect. This is his call. Essentially, God's put Adam in a garden. So in this world, he's created this garden that is beautiful and well-maintained. And he tells Adam, what I want you to do is spend the rest of your life making the rest of the earth look like this. That's an enormous mission. And so if he's going to do that, he's going to spend the rest of his life cultivating and working and growing and beautifying and building up and protecting and defending and guarding this thing. Now, that will be very important when we talk about marriage, and you'll see in a few moments. But here's Adam, and he's been given by God this call to work and to keep, to cultivate and to guard. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now again, I want you to pay attention to this. Here's the man. This is before sin has entered the world. So there's no fall. There's no brokenness. Everything is right. The man is in this perfect relationship with God. Everything is good. Nothing is broken or flawed. He's in the garden working and keeping, guarding and protecting just like he was called to do. And yet God notices it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, if you read Genesis 1 and go back and read it, you'll see that there's this refrain repeated over and over again, which is after each day of creation, God says what? It's good. He looks at it and he goes, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And that refrain is repeated in such a way that when you get to 2 and you hear God say, it is not good, your ears perk up and you go, something's off here. And what's off here is that though everything is right, everything is perfect, there's, there's no sin, God recognizes that it's not good for the man to be alone. He will need a helper, a creature that is fit for him. And what God does next is God is going to let Adam himself wake up to that reality. God's seen it, and now he's going to let Adam wake up to the reality that it's not good. Here's what I mean. Look at what happens next in verse 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And this is how it ends. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now again, if you'll allow your imagination to go back there, You've got to go back there. Let your mad imagination begin to imagine what this would be like. We don't know exactly how it happens. We're not given the details, but, but I picture sort of a parade of animals is brought before Adam. And now here is intelligent, genius Adam. No sin clouding his mind. Everything is firing on good cylinders. Everything is working right. And what he does is he sees each of these beasts. 
He studies them, he analyzes them, and he gives to each one an appropriate name. Right? So he'll see one and he'll call it a horse, and it'll go off with, with its pair. And then he'll see a, a hippopotamus, and it'll say, it's like the horse, but it lives in the river. It's a river horse. That's what hippopotamus literally means. And so he studies each one and gives it an appropriate name, and it goes off. And over and over again, until he names all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, he names every single creature. And he begins to look at them and observe them and study them. They go off in pairs, and he watches them eat. He watches them mate. And he thinks to himself, that's weird, right? Would you look at that? That's what these two are doing, right? Again, these are first days. Everything's just starting. And, and now, as each one has gone off, something begins to awaken in Adam's heart. There, there's nothing here like me. There, there's this longing that begins to awaken in his heart. And again, you've got to imagine, he doesn't even know what a creature that would be compatible to him would look like or be like. He doesn't even have an idea. He doesn't know what God is up to or what God's about to do. So he just senses that as he watches all these pairs, he is missing something. There's, there's an aching, a longing on his heart, something that he can't even quite put his finger on because he doesn't even know what it is that he would want, what it would be that would fit him. He just knows that something is off. It's like one pastor said, it's that God wasn't going to waste the precious gift of a wife on ungrateful Adam, but rather allows Adam to awaken to this longing and this yearning so that he would be ready to receive what God was about to give him. And so here Adam is, and perhaps he's restless, and perhaps he can't quite figure out exactly what's off. He just knows something is, and yet God, as a good father, perhaps comes to Adam and tells him, go to sleep. Everything is going to be fine. When you wake up, trust me. And so look at what happens in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had made, taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Again, if you'll allow your imagination to go there for a second. Here's Adam. He knows something is missing. He knows there's... There's this longing in his heart for another creature that would be like him. He doesn't even know what that would look like, what that would be like. What would another creature compatible to him be? And then he wakes up and he sees her. And she is spectacular, right? Imagine first human woman ever made. She is drop-dead gorgeous, the very first one. And he sees her, and immediately, I mean, he's done. He knows that is mine. He immediately knows. In fact, you're not even told that God fills him in on what happens, but he just sees her and immediately knows that was made for me. I see the other ones. I've been with hippos and tigers and lions and bears all day. That girl is mine, right? In fact, even the commentators pay attention to just words here. Like when Adam is made... It just says that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. It's the same verb used for how he forms the beast. The hippos and the man are made the same way. But the word used for how he makes the woman is God made her. She's different. She's like a work of art. He's a lump of clay. He, she is a work of art. And he sees her and immediately, you got to pay attention to the first words. This is the first recorded words of a human being. The first words to ever come out of the mouth of a man is love poetry. It's like, it's like prose. Regular words would be too crude for that moment. Song is required. Poetry is born in this guy's heart. And he begins to cry out, this at last. And that's when you hear it. He's been with the lions and the hippos all day. And and now this aching has been awakened in his heart. And now he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Love poetry. Song erupts onto the scene. And what happens is the man goes temporarily insane, right? He is just head over heels. He is, he's gone nuts. He's gone off the deep end. He literally temporarily loses his mind. The first time he looks at her that way. All right, brothers, for a second, 
Whether you've been married a few decades, a few months for some of you, just recently engaged or dating, do you remember what it was like when you first saw your girl that way? Right? Uh, Elvin's smiling, just so you know. Right? Do you remember the way that you felt when you first looked at her that way, the, the temporary insanity that set in? Uh, you may not know this, but I am not very romantic, right? And, and in part, I blame my father for that, right? My father, uh, he, he loves me. He loves my mom. My mom's in the back, and she's going to blush the whole way through. He loves my mom to death. Dad would die for mom tomorrow, no question. But dad's just not the mushy, you know, expressive type. In fact, I remember mom was just once playfully talking with dad, as many of you wives might do, and, and asked dad, what are you going to do if I die? And dad goes, I'm going to bury you, right? <laughs> and, and mom came running to me and goes, can you believe what this man said? And he goes, I kid you not, he goes, what? If I was rich, I'd freeze you in ice like Disney and keep you around, but I'm not, and so I'm going to bury you. What else am I going to do? That's my line. That's the genes I inherited. And so <laughs> romance does not come easy for me. It's not second nature, right? And yet I can tell you, when I met Shainu, I was done. A temporary insanity set in. I had never been that way. I had never talked that way. I had never felt that way ever before. It was like I had gone nuts. I remember the first time that I talked with Shainu or tried to communicate interest to her, right? And, and I had no game. I have no lines. I was a total loser. As you hear that, you'll see what a loser I am, right? But it's okay. I'm married, so I don't care what you think of me now, right? <laughs> the first time I tried talking to her, we're at a rest stop because we were going to go different ways. And so I'm going to try and tell her now what I've been feeling for months, right? So I literally try starting to talk to her, and I go, Shainu, I have to tell you. And my throat dries up. I kid you not. I'm not exaggerating. And I go, can we go inside and get some soda? And so we go into McDonald's at the rest stop. I take a sip of soda, and the best I could come up with, this is a word-for-word -word quote, is, I just want you to know I really thing you. <laughs> That's the best I could do, right? Again, loser, fine, but I'm married, right? To tell you how nuts I went, later that night, not 12 hours later, I called her up and I go, I, I love you. I just want you to know I love you. I went from I thing you to I love you in the first day. Temporary insanity, right? I once got three tickets in one drive to try and go see Shainu. If you've driven with me, you know I drive like an old lady, right? People are high-beaming me, honking me, passing by, screaming, drive, lady. I mean, dude, drive, right? I don't drive fast. When I went to see her, I was so excited. Three speeding tickets on one drive. You would think after the first time I got pulled over, I'd calm down, but I couldn't. Temporary insanity. Right? I could give you stories all day, but here's the thing. You could give me stories all day. Right? Do you remember what it was like the first time you saw her that way? And some of us in our marriages, honestly, hear me. This week, you just got to ask God, would you give me fresh eyes again? Would you help me to see her the way I first saw her? Would you remind me what it is about this woman that I went head over heels for? And would you give me fresh eyes? Listen. Whatever season of marriage you're in, would you please ask God to do that? Would you ask him, even if you're in the midst of conflict, even after all these years, so many things have piled on that you just have lost your way and lost where all of this began, would you ask God to just give you eyes to see her again the way that Adam saw this woman? Adam sees her and he bursts out into love poetry. God has brought her to him. And you just picture that scene. Did you notice even that God brings her to him? So what's happening? This is the very first wedding. And God is the father who's going to make this daughter and walk this daughter down the aisle and entrust her to this man. That's what God's done. Did you notice? He made her out of the rib. And then it says in verse 22, he brought her to the man. And so in the garden, you have the father walking down the very first daughter of his to this man and entrusting him with her. You, you picture him sort of having made Eve and saying, wait here, sweetheart, I'll be right back. He goes and shakes Adam up and says, wake up, boy, wake up. 
And then he goes and gets this daughter and brings her to the man and says, now she's yours. Now what's Adam supposed to do with her? Well, do you remember that God had given him a job? And he gave him a job so that Adam would know, work and keep. Cultivate, beautify, build up, defend, protect, guard. This is what I do with whatever God entrusts me. And so if he gives me a job, that's what I do. If he gives me a wife, build up, edify, beautify, cultivate, defend, protect, guard. This is what I do when God entrusts me with something. And so when God entrusted this woman to him, that's his call. That's the mission. And every man among you who is married, I want you to hear this. On your wedding day, what happened is that God took one of his daughters, walked her down the aisle, and said, now I'm trusting you with her. And you are supposed to spend the rest of your lives guarding and keeping, cultivating and building up this woman. And to do that well is going to be a mission that will take the rest of your lives. That's your high mission. That's your calling. That's your sacred task. Now here's the reality. As glorious as that calling is, and as sacred as that task is, we drift. We slowly begin to drift. And it happens to all of us. None of us are immune. We start off with this glorious mission and task, and yet over time we begin to drift. And for us men, we imagine that the mission is to get to the wedding day, and then we've won her, and now mission accomplished. And yet the wise man knows that this is a mission that will take the rest of your days. Right? What happens to us men? When we're pursuing this girl, we are creative and thoughtful and innovative, and we take initiative, and we take leadership, we're opening doors, we're pulling out chairs, we're whining and dining, and then we get married. And now the wine comes out of the box, and now we're tired, and we sit on the couch, and we pay bills, and the kids are here, and slowly we begin to drift. Right? All of us do that. And so perhaps for you men, it would be a good thing to ask yourself this week, Allow the Spirit to ask you, have you drifted? Ask yourself practically, do I spend more time, energy, thought, money, resources on cultivating and building up work rather than my wife? Or my hobby rather than my wife? Or something. Every man has wired within him, he's going to build something. He's going to be about something. And yet the, the question is, have you drifted so that you are no longer doing that which is your sacred task. It's not just the men, though, right? Ladies, you drift, right? Do you remember what you were like when you were being pursued before the wedding band got slipped over your finger? You were once sweet. Not that you're not sweet anymore, right? But you, you laughed at his jokes. You affirmed him. You applauded him. There was no doubt that you admired him. You were generous with your compliments and your affirmation. You made an effort in every way. You made yourself dateable and pursuable in every way. And then you got married, right? And Prince Charming suddenly put on a few pounds, lost a little bit of hair, and now this thing just became work. And somewhere along the way, kids came into the picture, and now you've drifted to the point where you are far more a mom than you are a wife. I want you to remember Genesis 2, after the creation's done, it's almost as if Moses is going to pause on the story to just tell us all. By the way, I want you to know, therefore, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is such a high, important call that it's described as one flesh, that the man and the woman literally have no barriers between them anymore. They're one in every way, body. One in soul, one in spirit, one in purpose, one in life, one in suffering, one in reputation. One in every way. And, and maybe you ladies would be reminded, this is such an exclusive relationship, not even the kids are involved. One flesh is such a highly inclusive, exclusive relationship, not even the children are a part of that covenant that you have with the man. 
And so your sacred task is to be one flesh with this man. And so perhaps you have to ask yourself, have I drifted? Am I far more a mom than I am this man's wife? We all drift. But I want you to watch what happens when Adam does drift. We won't go through it all now, but if you turn to Genesis 3, here's what happens when Adam fails this sacred task and is no longer occupied with cultivating and guarding, no longer occupied with building up and defending. In Genesis 3, what you see happens is into their perfect world, into that perfect garden, and into their perfect marriage, an intruder comes. An outsider comes into their marriage. God's enemy, the serpent, Satan, weasels his way into the marriage. And when he does, remember again what Adam's called to do. Adam is supposed to guard and defend and protect and cultivate. And so when he sees the serpent beginning to whisper deceit in the ears of his wife, he is supposed to crush the head of that serpent. He's supposed to defend God's truth and protect his wife. Instead, listen to what happens. 3 verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We've men mentioned of this before at Seven Mile Road, but again, often I used to think that Adam was out in the garden working and keeping. Eve got deceived. He came back, found a half-eaten apple, and ate himself. That's not what happens. It says, she ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. So where's Adam this whole time? He's standing right there, hands in his pocket, watching his wife be deceived, watching her be dragged away in sin, absent, abdicating, doing nothing. Total passive. Just watching his wife be enticed to her death. And then in verse 7, you find out what happens. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I mean, till now, again, remember, one flesh, naked in every way, completely open with one another, no separation, no barriers. And yet now sin comes into the world, and suddenly they who are one are torn in two, and they're separated. And, and now into their perfect, beautiful, joyful, romantic marriage weasels in guilt and fear and shame. And suddenly their wonderful marriage is beginning to disintegrate and be ripped to shreds. Now, because of sin, they hide from God and they immediately turn on each other. They were once one and now they're naked, ashamed, afraid, full of guilt, and they turn on each other. Remember I made mention of the first words Adam speaks. The very next time the man opens his mouth to speak about his wife, it's not love poetry anymore. It's accusation and blame. You want to know, God, why this marriage is not perfect? It's her. Hear that again. You want to know why things are no longer perfect? It's the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. It goes from wedding to war. It goes from love poetry to blame and accusation and hard words. And some of you know this all too well, of how sin rips apart your marriage. Some of you can share stories of how you go from wedding to war. I can tell you that from my story as well. It started for Shaino and I with great love song and poetry. And it did not take long for that to disintegrate into war. Years later, still we bear the pain of that first year and what happened in our marriage and our sin. How it did not take long for us to be at odds with one another and clash and argue and fight. We fought on our honeymoon. A week had not passed since we said those vows and we fought in ways that I still remember today. In our first year, I rem we, we will both remember, she'll tell you of specific streets we were on going from one place to another where we would literally have to pull over the car because we couldn't drive anymore because we erupted in another fight. Arguments that happened all the time with greater intensity and greater frequency. 
And we would think, while other people are in their first year enjoying brand newlywed bliss, here we were just trying to survive, just trying to make it because the thing was falling apart. I remember arguments that would start in the night and would last till the early hours of the morning. I remember each of us sitting by the bed in the dark, weeping, thinking, what is going on? How has it gotten to this? Where did, where did all this come from? And, and it's this curious thing, and you know it too. Sometimes the person you absolutely love the most can make you happier than anyone else and wound you deeper than anyone else. They have the ability, the same person, to bring you to the heights of heaven and to the depths of hell, and sometimes they can do it in seconds, and you can do it to them. We did not make it 10 months into our marriage because before things had gotten to such a low point that we had to go to counseling, marriage counseling, to just try and save our marriage. And here we were before the first wedding anniversary, sitting in a counselor's office, just trying to make this thing work. Sin comes in and rips up and ruins marriage, and you go from love poetry and wedding to war. Looking back, I've thought about it, and there was so much sin in me. So much sin. I could tell you of a hundred different ways that I failed to be what God had called me to be and instead looked a lot like Adam. Not guarding, not keeping, and instead blaming and accusing. Bitterness growing in my own heart, thinking, you want to know why this wedding is not perfect? It's her. The woman that you gave me, it's her. And I can tell you, one of my principal failures, and I share this with you because I hope it will be encouraging to some of you men. One of my principal failures is that I did not obey Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I just had divided loyalties in my heart. I knew this stuff in my head, and yet in reality, as it worked its way out, I just had divided loyalties about me. This language here is so strong. You men have to hear this. It says, a man shall leave. That word is cut off. It's actually the word for forsake. Now, is it that every husband needs to forsake his extended family? No. But it's that you form a new loyalty in such a way that it looks like you've cut off every other relationship in terms of loyalty. In fact, the word is leave and hold fast. That word hold fast is a word that God will later use to describe how people are to cling to him. You're to hold fast to God. It's the same word that you're supposed to now hold fast to this wife in a way that's like the way a Christian holds to God. It's this decisive cut, this establishing of this new home, this new loyalty, this new relationship that trumps every other one. Remember, Eve was made. Remember the way Eve was made? She was made as a helper fit for him. She was made for Adam. And so hear me, women, I think there is in the heart of every woman this aching question, perhaps hidden deep, that just wants to know, do you like me? Like, am I the one? Am I the one that is made for you in such a way that trumps every other loyalty that you have? And a wise husband will be generous in affirming that love and leaving no question in the heart of his wife as to where his first loyalty lies. But I was not a wise husband. On Shainu's end, I think in that first year, she would say, and, and I want you to know, I asked Shainu's permission for everything I've shared today. Right? I, I gave her my sermon and gave her veto power for any of it. And, and I think to encourage you, she allows me to share all of it. And I hope it is. In, her, in our first year, I think she would say, that one of the things that she did and one of the places where she failed is that what she used to go to Jesus for, she now tried to find in me. And so acceptance and affirmation and validation and love, those are not bad things. And, and those should come from a husband. And yet there was just this inordinate desire that they should come from me. I was put on this place that all of that had to come from me. And you would think being elevated to such a pedestal would be flattering. In reality, it's crushing because you have no place to go but down and you have no place to do but fail. You're not going to meet those expectations. 
That's why if you're here and you're in a relationship and this person is everything to you, even as a parent, if that child is everything to you and all your meaning and all your joy and all your success and all your validation and affirmation comes from this person, rather than flattering them, what you're doing is setting them up for failure because nobody can bear the weight of your idolatry. That's why only Jesus can fill that high place because no matter how much burden you put on him for love, acceptance, validation, joy, his shoulders are broad enough. Everyone else's is too small. And in that first year, I felt much more a failure than I did like I was doing well. And I said, Eve was made a certain way. Adam was made a certain way. Adam was made with this mission, this drive, this calling to get something done. And so I think there's a deep question in the heart of every man, aching and longing to know, tell me you think I can do this. Tell me you know I can get this done. And a wise wife, will be generous in affirming with great respect her husband, in, in letting him know, I believe in you. Because a, a wife's confidence fills a man's heart with all the strength and resolve he needs to get anything that God calls him to get done, done. But the truth is, we were not wise. And in that first year, we were sinful and proud and easily tempered and selfish and sinful in a million different ways. And 10 months into our marriage, we were sitting in a counselor's office just trying to make the thing work, just trying to survive. Over the years, I have thought back as to what happened. And sometimes I've thought to myself, maybe it was the circumstances all around us. Maybe it was some of those unique challenges that I had. And, and maybe that stuff spilled into our first year, and, and that's what caused it. And I, and I find a hundred different places. I remember we were sharing this with someone, and someone asked Shino and me, why did all that happen? You guys fell in love and met each other. Why did you have such a hard time? And I'm trying to come up with one reason after another, and Shino finally blurts out, because we're sinners. And after a long time, I began to realize, you know why all that happened? Because that's what we are. The problem was not out there. The problem was in here. Let me ask you, if I asked you, what is the problem in your marriage? If I asked you, what is broken about your relationship? If that were fixed, your whole relationship would be different. If I asked you, if you could identify that one thing in your marriage that's not right, and if that would change, your marriage would change, what would your answer be? I think if I could read your mind right now and put your answers up on the screen, I think you would find a screen full of different words and answers. Maybe you know the right answer you should say, but in your heart, some of you right now said, it's her. If she would change, this marriage would change. It's him. If he was different, if he didn't do that, this marriage would be different. It's her mother. It's finances. It's the children. It's the sex. It's the pressure. And, and we could probably fill up the screen with all of us giving different answers. You know what the reality is? You know what the biggest problem in my marriage is? Me. You know what the biggest problem in your marriage is? You. Because you are the worst sinner that you know. And I am the worst sinner that I know. And the greatest problem in my marriage is that I am a sinner. And I'm the worst sinner that I know. You know why your marriage is the way that it is? It's because sin works its way in. Right? You ever wonder, how can I love so deeply and wound so badly at the same time? How, how can we be so in love and so badly apart in the same person at the same time? You men, have you ever been to the place where, you know, it's the free Saturday. You could be watching college football all day, but instead you work around the house. You plan the perfect evening. You take her to the restaurant. You're all dressed up. Everything is perfect. You plan the whole night. And she says one thing, and it ruins everything. 
And now your only memory looking back is that terrible fight that you had on the way home. And later you wonder, how did it get there? How did we go from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell in a minute? Why did I react that way? Because you're a sinner, the worst one that you know. Or you ladies, you know the time when he says he'll be home by 8 and walks in at 10. And a few minutes ago, you were pacing the room thinking of how worried you were and how much you love this person and you don't want to be a widow and you're wondering if some terrible thing has happened and your love for him is so high. And then he walks in and tells you he just forgot to call. And now you're thinking to yourself, I am going to be a widow because I'm going to kill him, right? And how do you go from that extreme to the other? I'm going to put this man in the ground. I'm done. It's because you're a sinner, the worst one that you know. How do I know that? In 1 Timothy, Paul says this. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. And so that's his way of saying, everybody listen, and everybody can accept this. And he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And every Christian would say, amen. And then he says, of whom I am the worst. And you can't say amen to the first part without saying amen to the second. Because if you get the first part, you'll get the second part. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Of whom I am the worst. Amen. I'm the worst sinner that I know. You're the worst sinner you know. And the biggest problem in your marriage is you. Let me read you one quote of a pastor who tries to explain that passage. Here's what he says. He says, Paul is saying in effect, Look, I know my sin. And what I've seen in my own heart is darker and more awful. It's more proud, selfish, and self-exalting, and it's more consistently and regularly in rebellion against God than anything I've glimpsed in the heart of anyone else. As far as I can see, the biggest sinner I know is me. And, that, and that's what it is. It's not an exaggeration. I'm telling you, we are. I am the biggest problem in my marriage, and so are you. When Jesus is talking about sin, in sin in someone else, in sin in you. He says, before you pick out the speck in your brother's eye or your spouse's eye, you've got to start with the assumption that you've got a log out of coming out of yours. And so the idea would be when you're in conflict, Jesus' primary question is not find out who's more at fault and start there. Jesus' primary question is let your focus be on the assumption that you've got sin, a plank's worth compared to the speck worth in your spouse's. Now, am I saying that there are never instances where one person is not genuinely wrong, where they're not genuinely innocent? No, but I am saying those are the rare exceptions and not the norm. And so you know, as well as I do from my own story, and you could tell your own, how sin devastates and ruins marriage. Some of you are there right now. Some of you are suffering from the effects of it. Some of you have crossed boundaries you thought you would never cross said and done things you can never take back. Some of you are trying your best effort to put a good face forward, and deep down, you and your husband or wife knows what your home is like. Sin. And, and, and you know, perhaps just like Adam, what it's like to go from love poetry to blame and accusation, from wedding to war. Well, here's what I would say to you. There is good news for you. I want you to hear that again. There is good news for you. You know what this whole book is about? If you have not figured it out by now, this whole book is that there is good news for sinners, for the worst of sinners. This whole book is the story of how we made a mess of everything, our lives, how you made a mess of your marriage, and yet God has found a way to fix your mess. That's what the whole book is about. That's what the gospel is. It's good news for ruined, broken sinners that there is hope. What if you believe that in your marriage right now, that there's hope for you, the ruined husband and wicked wife, there's hope, and it comes from the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the good news is Adam and Eve's story don't end in Genesis 3. It's good news that this book is not two pages long and stops, but the rest of the book is the story of God trying to redeem them. Because right after they ruin their perfect marriage, do you know what the very next thing is? In Genesis 3, God comes. And God shows up. And God calls out, Adam, 
Where are you? That's the question. And maybe that's the question that the Holy Spirit wants to ask you wherever you are, whatever stage of life. Maybe the Holy Spirit this morning wants to ask you, where are you? Maybe that's what God wants to do for you this morning. Maybe you picture that if God's going to come, he's going to come with a stick in his hand ready to swat you or ready to condemn you or his face is angry and yet the God you see in Genesis 3 is to this couple that had made a mess of themselves and ruined their marriage, God comes and he says, where are you? And maybe the Holy Spirit is doing that in your heart right now and asking you, where are you? And with that question, God initiates this pursuit to redeem ruined sinners. And that pursuit will find its culmination and climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God literally coming down in the flesh. And Jesus is God's shout to the world, where are you? And Jesus came in the flesh to redeem ruined sinners. And in fact, when Jesus comes, do you know that the Bible calls him the second Adam? I'm not making that up. The Bible calls him the second Adam as if to say there was Adam 1.0 and now here is Adam 2.0. Here is the redeemed Adam. Here's the perfect Adam. And Jesus comes and does what Adam was supposed to do and didn't. Jesus would find himself in a garden and yet where Adam disobeyed by that garden, Jesus in Gethsemane pledges himself to obedience. And Adam was by that tree and he failed to protect his bride. And yet Jesus will come to a tree and extend his arms to its farthest point to give his life for his bride. No wonder do you not know that our relationship with God is described like what? Marriage. Where we're the bride and finally at last we have a good and perfect groom. The true Adam, the second Adam. The one who comes and perfectly loves, works and keeps cultivates and guards, builds up and defends his bride. Doing so to the point of his own death. He would rather die than live without her. That is the true groom. And the whole story of the gospel, the whole story of the Bible is God saying, I love you, but I lost you, and I'm going to get you back. That's what he does in the garden. I love you, but I lost you, and I'm going to get you back. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is simply the display of what God has done for us. I have loved you. I lost you somewhere along the way, but I am going to win you back. And when you begin to see the love of Jesus for his bride, now you get a, a glimpse into what is the purpose of your marriage. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But you also begin to get the fuel that will fuel your own marriage. How are you supposed to live and love like he loved you? As Christ has loved the church, so you are to love one another. This is what marriage is for. And every marriage, no matter how good or bad, this is what marriage is about. And no matter how bad you think your marriage is, I want you to hear me this morning. I think this is the mercy and grace of God to you. Because God is coming to you even now and saying, where are you? I've been redeeming marriages from day one. Did you hear that again? I've been fixing broken marriages from day one. And he's done that in my life. I've shared you of my joys and my brokenness. I can tell you God is still at work in two wicked sinners like Shiner and me. But I love her more dearly and deeply today than on that first day where I talked to her. That is absolutely true, and she does me. And we have much more to go, but I can tell you, seven years in, I am grateful to God for what he's done because he changed me, and he changed her, and he changed our marriage. And he's been doing that since day one. And he wants to do that for you as well. So allow the Holy Spirit to ask you this morning, where are you? And allow God to come and find you and redeem you like he did Adam and Eve. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for the way that you have loved us from the beginning. That when we have turned our backs upon you and even in our sin, that you came to redeem us and rescue us, that you sent your own precious son for our sake. We thank you for 
the ferocity in which you have loved us. We thank you that you pursued us and came after us like you did in that garden. And even now, I ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to each of us and ask us, where are we? Where are we in our relationship with you? Where are we in our marriage? I pray that you would do more than just fix marriages at this church. You would, you would redeem people and lives. Now, there's much more we could ask. We just pray that you would do more than we knew to ask in this time and speak to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.